The Bridgertons are by far the most prolific family in the upper escalons of society. Such industriousness on the part of the Viscountess and the late Viscount is commendable, although one can find only banality in their choice of names for their children. Antony, Benedict, Colin, Daphne, Eloise, Francesca, Gregory, and Hyacinth. Orderliness is, of course, beneficial in all things, but one would think that intelligent parents would be able to keep their children straight without needing to alphabetize their names. Furthermore, the sight of the Viscountess and all eight of her children in one room is enough to make one fear one is seeing double, or triple, or worse. Never has this author seen a collection of siblings so ludicrously alike in their physical regard. Although this author has never taken the time to record eye color, all eight possess similar bone structure and the same thick chestnut hair. One must pity the Viscountess as she seeks advantageous marriages for her brood that she did not produce a single child of more fashionable coloring. Still, there are advantages to a family of such consistent looks. There can be no doubt that all eight are of legitimate parentage. Ah, gentle reader, your devoted author wishes that were the case amid all large families. Lady Whistledown Society Papers, 26 April, 1813. Shh. Your shelf for my Talking sophisticated topics all the time. Your shelf for mine. Kick back, relax, crack a book on wine at your shelf for mine. Your shelf or mine. Hello, and welcome to your shelf or mine. I'm Becky Standle, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Joe Dallas, Programming Technician at the Library. And today, Joe and I are talking about Julia Quinn and specifically the Bridgerton series. Let's just start kind of how we often start with our author podcasts and say kind of before you started prepping for this, what was your background with Julia Quinn? Well, I read Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series before the Netflix show. It was when I was living in Anchorage in the early 2000s. I came across her at the Anchorage Public Library. I was stuck at home with two young kids climbing the walls and it was very dark and very cold and I really needed something to read that was light and fun and take me away like Kelgon. <laughs> So have you read most of her books? I don't think I've read all of her books. I know she had that. Uh, it wasn't the Featherington. There's there's some off, yeah. off series, but I have read a lot of her books. But it has been a few years ago, and now she's starting to do the prequels, mm -hmm. Bridgerton prequels, and I think I've only read one of those. So not all, but a lot. How about you, Becky? Well, I had never read any of Julia Quinn's books before, and when the Netflix show came out, I watched that. I remember because it had come out in, to like a lot of fanfares. It's a Shonda Rhimes show, and she's incredibly popular and talented. I had had some sort of conversation with Austin around that time about like romances, and he, like one that you do, um, where I was like defensive about it. And then I think in relation to this show, 
And then he forgot about it or didn't realize that's what we were talking <laughs> about. He was like, oh, I watched this. I started watching this show called Bridgerton on Netflix. And I got really mad. <laughs> I was like, we were just talking about that show. And you were like making fun of it. Was he dissing it? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and he's like, it's a pretty good show. And I was really annoyed that he'd started to watch a show without me that it seemed like he wasn't ever really interested in. And so he felt bad and he stopped watching it and then we watched it together. So I'd seen the first season of the show and then the second season and then I've just read the book. I started to read The Duke and I a year ago and didn't get that far into it and then just read it like this week. That reminds me, when I was reading these books, and the first one I read was The Viscount Who Loved Me. From watching the Netflix series, mm-hmm. I've learned that's the correct pronunciation yes. because in my head I was saying Viscount. But my husband would see the cover of those books and would tease me too. Mm-hmm. And the version I read, the guy's standing up, he's got his boots on and his legs lifted or something, and it's like The Viscount Who Loved Me. Yeah, Ooh. the original covers of the books are really like pearls and gowns yeah. and like men in boots yeah, yeah. they look like real bodice rippers mm-hmm. yeah but I like the newer covers yeah that, that are based off of the the Netflix series mm-hmm. yeah me too but I've always liked to read romance and I've always or up until recently felt embarrassed mm-hmm. by it that you know that it wasn't as intellectual a genre as other ones and I am kind of really thankful to this Netflix series where I feel like it's been making it more acceptable yeah I definitely feel like in the last 10 years, maybe, there has been like more of a movement to make people see romance as like a more legitimate genre. And I think publishers are kind of treating it more seriously, just the way that like the covers look and right. and publishing them in like, you know, ma- uh, trade paperback and hardback. Right. I did my undergrad degree was an English degree, and I was definitely made to feel there that there's a lot of snobbery around it in mm-hmm. the academic field, and I was made to feel that it wasn't good fiction and that good fiction doesn't sentiment and mm-hmm. strong emotions. And then, you know, in library school, learning that has trickled down to the media and anything with broad appeal is very mm-hmm. suspect from a literary point yeah. of view. Especially if it's like broadly appealing mostly to women. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I think it is funny at the same time because I also studied English and that's true. But to me, like at the same time, a lot of people really love Jane Austen. Right. Who created the genre. Right. And her books aren't really like that different or more literary than The Duke and I. There's always talking, you know, like there's Mm -hmm. a lot of conversations. And what is that in movies? What is that? The Bechdel test? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Where two women have to have at least a conversation. Mm -hmm. It could be about anything to pass the Bechdel test. Yeah. Two women with names. Right. Right. A conversation about anything but a man. And you don't see that very much, but you really see it in Bridgerton. Mm-hmm. There's there's lots of conversations between women with names. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like that. I was looking for that. 
I think. Oh, I wanted to say one of my teachers, Misha Stone, who is a librarian at the Seattle Public Library, said there are no good books or bad books. Good books are books you loved and bad books are books you didn't enjoy. Sometimes I think there's bad books. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, you can't always get people to agree with you. I wanted to talk about in the copy of The Duke and I that I have, mm-hmm. it's like a Netflix show tie-in copy. And in the very back it has this section from the author that's called Behind the Book. And it talks about her backstory and how she became to write romance novels. And I thought it was really cute. So she grew up, her parents were divorced and she would spend the summer in Southern California with her father and her mom lived in Connecticut. So the rest of the year she was in Connecticut. But both of her parents lived really close to the library and were big readers. Her mom was really like hands off about it, but her dad, it sounds like he was a writer and was always like really interested in what she was reading and would give her a hard time about reading this romance series, uh, like teen romance series that she was reading. Oh, I, I heard a, a little bit of a, an interview with her I listened to. Yeah, it wasn't Sweet Valley High, but it, it was, was called, something similar. Yeah, so it was in the 80s. It was called uh, Sweet Dreams. Right, yeah. And so impress him, she told him that she was reading them for research and that she was going to write romance novels so that she needed to know the genre. And he was like, oh, okay. Well, you can use my computer. She's smarter than me. <laughs> And so she sat down and she started writing and that's kind of like how it happened. But then this might be the first book that she had published, The Duke and I. So this would have been, you know, years later um, that she wrote this. But she also kind of talks about a little how she came up with the idea of Lady Whistledown as just a way to do exposition that was interesting. But... When she was first working on the book, her dad had come over to her house and like sat down to use her computer and the draft was up on the screen and he read it, which made her mad. But he was like, this is really good. Oh, wow. And I thought that was cute. And he's, who's Lady Whistledown? This is like, you need to solve this mystery. And she says she didn't know until she was writing the second book. Hmm. Who it should be. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And then she went back to the first book and was like, oh, I hope I didn't say anything in the first book that would. Right. Uh reveal it yeah or or like make it so that wouldn't work out but she didn't i remember being surprised that it was pen but Mm -hmm. i'm not very good at guessing the mysteries (laughs) it's interesting reading this after having watched the show because the show builds up the world so much bigger and faster the books at least this one like really focuses really closely just on the couple and then like a couple of the other characters are in it, you know, more than others. Her mom, although not as much as in the show. Her oldest brother, Anthony, as they yeah. say on the show. <laughs> and um, Colin is actually in this one kind of just as much. But in the Lady Whistledown excerpts, they mention the Featheringtons mm-hmm. more than any other family. Yeah. Even though they're not really in the rest of the book at all. So I wonder if what I would have thought. Who knows? Right. Right. Can't go back in time and not know who it is. (laughs) Right. But I really like, especially how it's done in the show. Yeah. It's treated as like a big mystery of the first season in particular. Right. And then you get the whole, they're able to write about women having minds Mm -hmm. and um, having independence. And she, I don't know where they're going to go with it, but Penn's got all that money squirreled away in her floorboards, you know, from... From selling the Lady Whistledown pamphlet. Yeah, you can bring a lot 
into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about just more about the the show versus the books. Well, I I can say that I found the Duke and I and the first Netflix series pretty similar, but the 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 second Netflix series with Anthony's story they really diverted it quite a bit mm-hmm. which and it made me I still liked the series but it made me like the book better for that one oh really yeah I haven't read the second book although I really did like the second season of the show quite a bit it's interesting so I, I rewatched like the first three episodes of the first season of the show earlier this week. And man, was I finding Anthony super annoying, annoying. and terrible. I'm like, oh my gosh, do you even want your sister to get married? You're like sabotaging everything. I make her marry this terrible person who is that beer. What's his name? Oh, I can't remember that fop kind of guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the show, like there's this whole thing about like he's like a terrible person and she might have to marry him. And he's kind of in the, in the beginning of this book. And that's how she meets Simon. But he doesn't continue to play any kind of role in the rest of the book, except for like a comment in some whistle down excerpt that she he ends up marrying one of them, one of the whistle uh, oh. uh, Featheringtons. Oh, gotcha. I think in the show, Anthony really has to have like a kind of a redemption arc because he's oh, yeah. such a jerk right. and he treats his his mom and his sister badly and also he is this mistress who's an opera singer is that in the books yes yeah yeah they went i i thought in the first series i was thinking something's going to happen with that Mm -hmm. opera singer character in the second series but it didn't we we just didn't hear anymore and then in the second one he's just going through the women it's like (laughs) you're seeing him so much without his shirt on Uh in bed with somebody but that's, yeah, I could see what you mean about that arc because in the second series, we see all that backstory of mm-hmm. him where he was with his dad when yeah. his dad died and having to make the decision, do you save your mom or save the baby? Yeah. And just forced all that responsibility on him when he was still really young, mm-hmm. you know, so you kind of feel sorry for him. Or have some kind of understanding. Yeah, that like now that his brothers are older, he wants them to have all the responsibility and he doesn't want to. Right. Doesn't want to do that because he's got lots of spares. He's Mm -hmm. the heir. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't have to worry about it. No, because he says that to Simon, too. Mm -hmm. He goes, I've got one thing you don't, brothers. But I, uh, what I felt in the series is they took that... It actually felt boring for me a little bit with, you know, because he's pursuing the sister, Edwina, Mm -hmm. but he, there's that sexual chemistry between him and the oldest. What's the oldest's name again? Kate is her name. Oh, thank you. Yes, Kate. And it just goes on and on and on where in the book, she actually gets stung on her breast by the bee, which that was in the series too. Uh, but, and then he tries to suck the venom <laughs> out of her. And then they're at the house the house party and he's caught, you know, the oh, people come. Damn. And so, yeah, he's forced to marry her. That's kind of what happens yeah. Daphne and Simon in the first one. You're right. Yeah. They're, 
they're caught. Yeah. So yeah. maybe they didn't want it to be too much the same. Anyway, that just I just liked the book better for that one. But it, it is so good. We can talk about the diversity, mm-hmm. equity, and inclusion in the series versus the novels. I wanted to say that I saw Julia Quinn was on the Tamara Hall show and they, she asked about the DEI in the books versus the Netflix series. And I thought Julia had a really good quote. She said, I am one person. I can only be as diverse as I am. And where she said the series, not only is Shonda Rhimes producing it, and Julia is a consulting producer on it, but the just how diverse the writing staff is diverse, mm-hmm. the, the behind the scenes, everything. And it just it just goes to show when everybody has a seat at the table, I think it is how much better and more creative yeah, it becomes because everyone has their own backstories, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone can bring different things. Yeah. And I even think it was interesting when I first started watching the show and I they don't explore it too much in the first season. You, you wonder, is the show blind cast where they're just casting right. people and they're not race isn't part of the story, which I think that, you know, like kind of like Ham- how Hamilton does it. Right. And I think there's definitely like like a place for that. Um or is it going to come up in the series? Mm-hmm. And it does. But it's really slow in the first season. They've mentioned maybe maybe between Simon and uh, Lady Dansbury. Yeah. Very briefly, kind of towards the end. But they it really comes up more in the second season. And I thought reading this book, it talks about Simon's backstory of him having his mother died in childbirth. And his father was very old and rejected him. When he was young because he had a stutter and told everybody he was dead and he didn't have a son. And, and you know, Simon has all of these issues because of that. But in the show, uh, when I started watching it again, and I think it's fun to, to have watched a show and then watch it again, especially one like this where there's so many characters and when you just jump in, you're just kind of, it's like washing over you. Like, I don't know who these people are <laughs> right. and like how they're going to like, you know, have what they're going to have to do with the story. But if you watch it again, you can, you know, you start to notice things. And in one of those flashback scenes with Simon's father, he says, you know, I was given this dukedom and I'm not going to like mess it up. He clearly has something to prove, I think, because of his race that kind of gives maybe like a more interesting texture to the backstory of him rather than that. He's just a jerk. Oh, yeah. 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 I never caught that, Becky. It's like blink and you miss it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And then we there was, I believe, some rumors of the queen in reality that Mm -hmm. she might have been of some heritage and I don't think that there's very many paintings of her but there was and I don't know if that has been proven or not Mm -hmm. but there have been people speculating about the real queen at that time that was married to King George and so I'm wondering if they took that and then kind of ran with it That, that her being of a different heritage has, you know, allowed the aristocracy to open up mm-hmm. more. And that's going to be really explored. So here's a question for you as someone who's read uh, the Bridgerton books. So the queen appears not at all in The Duke and I. Is she a character in the rest of the books? She she does like that part in the second Netflix series where she gets Eloise to investigate. Mm-hmm. That was in 
the books I remember, and she's a little bit more of a character, but not, I love the actress yeah. that plays her. She does it so well, and not as much as in the series, yeah. And then I attended, Netflix did this, you, you could attend online where they were talking about the new series that's going to come out on May the 4th, and it's all about the Queen's story. And they had the actors that were playing the Queen when she was young, Lady Danbury when she was young, and King George when he was young. And it looks like it's going to be really good. Yeah, I'm really I'm excited. excited. Yeah, about it. And then you had learned that there's going to be a novel coming out. Yes. So I had seen that Julia Quinn and Shonda Rhimes, I think, together are writing prequel books kind of based off of the tv show so that'll be neat to see mm -hmm. how different they are yeah i i wonder if they'll because to me like the biggest difference is that distinction between having like the really narrow focus of the couple for the books and the big wider focus for the show when we were talking earlier before we were recording about that one character that colin almost marries in the oh, first season marina marina and her story and so i looked it up in the Eloise book, which is called To Sir Philip with Love, Sir Philip is her husband, the one she ends up marrying, who's the brother of the man that she was in love with. Mm -hmm. And so she appears in Sir Philip with Love, To Sir Philip with Love, as his dead wife. Oh. Yes. So she's just like part of his backstory oh, in okay. that book. And I don't know where it's going because I don't know if they'll still do that and kind of kill her off and then have... Eloise have a, like a romance with him. I wonder if they're setting Eloise up to like not have a romance. I remember reading the uh, person that plays Anthony. He mm -hmm. said he can't wait to walk Eloise down the <laughs> aisle. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what's going to become next. Oh, and also in that uh, show I watched talking about the prequel, fans were speculating that the next Bridgerton the series number three will come out around Christmas. Mm. But Netflix hasn't said yeah. anything for sure. And they're skipping uh, Benedict's book and going to Colin's book. I think Yay, because people... I didn't like Benedict's story <laughs> oh, very really? much. Maybe they're changing his. I think because people are so invested in Penelope's story. Yeah, Penelope and Colin. Yeah. I don't know what I think about Colin. Yeah, I remember not... I like him as, like, the brother character in the the book, The Duke and I. Yeah. He's, like, Daphne's favorite brother, and he's, like, the one who's not as macho as the other ones. Right. He's, like, whatever you want me to do. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about him? I remember liking Colin a lot and waiting for his story and Pence, because those were such... Uh, I liked both of those characters. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of like a friends to lovers mm -hmm trope that's what I like I was reading about the one of my favorite scenes in the book was the Pall Mall scene where they which is like the croquet scene and in the book it was Colin that noticed the sexual tension between Antony and Kate first yeah. where in the series it was they made it seem like Daphne was yeah. the one that was noticing it but in the book, it was Colin that did it. And Colin's the one that sent Kate's ball 
off oh. into the woods so she would have to go with Anthony uh-huh. like away from the crowd because he was being like a matchmaker. Yeah, yeah. He does a little bit of that in this one too because interestingly in the book the Duke and I their romance trip they kind of use two in the show where they're both have a pretend relationship and they're also kind of enemies to lovers yeah they fight a lot in the show that's not how it is in the book it's pretty much the one trope of them pretending to have a relationship the fake date and they like get along really well from almost the beginning they decide to do that and then they tell Anthony and he so he knows about it he doesn't like it, but he knows about it kind of from the beginning. But Colin doesn't know. And he, he makes all these jokes and kind of maneuvers to let them have their like private moments and stuff. Because it's been a long time since I read The Duke and I. It was nice to be refreshed about it. Um, one of the things that uh, why people liked the Netflix series so much was all the hype about all the sex scenes in it. And- I was surprised reading the book. To realize uh, there's more sex in the show uh, yeah, than there is in the book. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the things people have talked about is the female-centric gaze. Some of the show's writers were absolutely women, not all of them, for writing the scripts. But you definitely see that in that show compared to other ones where the women... Like if you compared it to something like Game of Thrones... Yeah, you de- women are definitely getting their pleasure in, yeah. the, in the Bridgerton. It's not all about the man's pleasure. And the camera, the way that the camera focuses on stuff is very much with like a female gaze, I think, too. Yes. Or like the fan service, as one would say, is for people who are attracted to the men. Right. Yeah. 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 We see a lot of shirtless Anthony. guys. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we were talking before about they duplicate the scene in the Pride and Prejudice series, the BBC series, I believe it was, where he, Colin Firth yeah. falls into the lake when it has the white shirt on and it gets all wet. And uh-huh. then in the second, Anthony falls into the lake and they're all loving his. <laughs> His chest. I was like, these poor guys really had to have a good diet and workout (laughs) schedule because they were looking great. (laughs) Um, Another thing, very interesting thing that happens in the first book with the Duke and I, and we'll give a trigger warning here, but there's a conversation about consent. Um, In the first Netflix movie, Simon lies to Daphne telling her he can't have children. The truth is he doesn't want to have children and uses the tried and true method of pulling out. (laughs) Not a perfect method. No, for birth control. (laughs) And Daphne doesn't have any sex education. And they do show it in the show the night before her wedding. Her mom tries to talk to her. And it's just bad at it. It's a funny scene in the show. Yeah. She's like, all right, well, you'll figure it out. Yeah. But due to her lack of sex education, Daphne doesn't realize Simon is doing that to avoid a pregnancy. And she finally finds out her maid tells her and she's angry. Yeah. And it's not they don't tell her directly because also her maid or housekeeper, they don't know what she knows or doesn't know. But it's like something that they say like offhand that kind of connects the dots for her. And... It's really interesting how it plays out both in the book and in the show. So the book was published in like 2001. 
around there kind of we weren't having great conversations culturally about consent at that time and it's since me too I think that's a bigger more common part of conversations and a part of sex ed that people have and changes I think the way that that scene is received in both places especially since there's been a lots of conversations in like the romance field like about how these books contribute to ideas about sex and consent in people's lives Anyways, so in the books, Daphne realizes that he's been pulling out to avoid a pregnancy right after they've had sex in one scene, and she becomes very upset and confronts him about it. And then she goes like away from him, and I think they end up spending several nights apart before he kind of realizes that she's really mad about it. <laughs> and then he kind of confronts her, and she's just, you know, she's like, I don't want to see you, leave me alone. He goes out drinking and comes home and needs to be taken care of. And they end up going to sleep and then waking up and they have a really iffy sex scene where it could be seen as her taking advantage or forcing herself on him where he... Is she on top in She's the on top. And okay. so he finishes inside her right. and, you know, he becomes immediately really upset. He's worried that she's going to become pregnant. He's made this like vow to himself that he won't have children because he's mad at his father who's dead his dead father and he thinks that she's like done this on purpose and and so he gets mad and he leaves she ends up thinking that she is pregnant and telling him and then he comes back and she wasn't and then they have in the book kind of a conversation about it she's really confused about her own like motivations on what happened and why she kind of, she feels bad about it kind of was she angry in the book when they're having sex or when she learned that the reason why he was yes. doing that. But it's separate from, I think the book separates that, like her anger and her confrontation from that night that they have oh, okay. the, the sex scene. Okay. So like in the show, she doesn't confront him about it until after. It's like really more clear. I remember watching that scene and I'm like, she's raping him. Yeah. Like he... Yeah, because he, he's I, like, he says, he no, says, don't he says, something. don't like, yeah. you know, like, get off of me. And she right. doesn't. Right. And then after it's over, her attitude is very much like, this is what I want. And mm-hmm. so I just took what I wanted. And it's different in the book. It's really interesting. I had a quote from the book. It mm-hmm. says, Quinn clearly wrote this scenario as a violation Daphne had aroused him in his sleep, taken advantage of him while he was still slightly intoxicated, and held him to her while he poured his seed into her. Yeah, so the book, and which is common in romance books, it kind of like moves from her perspective into his perspective. Mm-hmm. And that line is from his perspective. Mm-hmm. After it's happened, she did this. Later, two pages later, she's like, she, from her perspective, she's saying, she didn't plan it out ahead of time. So it just happened in the moment, you know. Mm-hmm. I see. So it's not super clear cut, I feel like, in the book. Right. Because he has this perspective and she has a different one. And it's made more complicated, I feel like. Mm-hmm. It's not great. <laughs> I'm not well, saying, you know. Just from my perspective, mm-hmm. I know when I read that, I had no, it just went right over yeah. my head. I did not think twice about it when I read it in the early 2000s and now since the me too movement seeing it 
on the and also in the the Netflix special Simon's Black, mm-hmm. w- which I think makes it worse, you right. know, because there's, there's that history of black men being blamed for sexual violence. Yeah, there's that power mm-hmm. dynamic. And so it's it is interesting how they handled it. Yeah, I was surprised that the show didn't handle it better. Right. Um, because it was after Me Too. Yeah. When it, yeah, it yeah. was made. Yeah. And they don't, I don't remember them ever really have a conversation where that the focus, they're like apart for a while after that happens. And all of the conversations they have are about him lying to her and his problems with his father and his, I don't know, his hangups around like the revenge that he needs to get on his father by living without children. Yeah. Not having an heir. Yeah. And it's, they never talk about like her breaking his trust. Just from a relationship standpoint, I don't see, you think that's going to come up, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like later in their, in their lives or in their relationship. Um, Something neat I learned that happened, the lack of warning and classification around that scene in the Netflix special had prompted an Australia-wide campaign by youth education organization Consent Lab to make lack of consent an official classification alongside violence, coarse language, sexual reference, and other acts that warrant an on-screen warning in Australia by the classification board. Oh, that's there. good. I wonder if yeah. Netflix will do that then internationally. Yeah. Because they have, yeah, like the little thing at the beginning that like this is rated TV, whatever. Right. Um, for these reasons. Nudity. Yeah. They have those warnings. And it does feel like when you're watching the show, because I didn't know, have the background of having read the book. Right. It feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere. And that, if I remember right, I feel like that's like the end of the episode. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're just like, what? Right. <laughs> We need some conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, that's a big topic. Yeah, I guess one of the things that's good about that is it has fostered like a lot of conversations. Right. Yeah. About consent. Mm -hmm. And I know that my daughter, who's 25, was she was watching it with me and she automatically picked up she's like oh my god what's that's terrible that's rape i think the younger generation know it better maybe than you know my generation so uh do you want to talk about characters what character do you relate to the most yeah so the thing with having only read the first book is you're not introduced very deeply to very many of the characters yet because that's kind of done more as the series goes on and my favorite characters are definitely like from the show yeah so i love eloise she's maybe my favorite character that's me too yeah. <laughs> and even when i read the book i loved eloise i love her feminism you know uh-huh. julia quinn has said that when she was writing the characters she goes i don't even remember how i pictured them but she said now i only picture mm-hmm. them as the actors and she said she was writing some in the prequel and she needed colin and daphne and antony were little and she got the actor that played colin to send her his baby picture Aww. so she had that visual uh-huh. of him as a baby that's cute she's such a fiery character and she's she has <laughs> just as like naive about things as Daphne or any of the other girls who they like don't tell anything about anything in the world. But in the show, there's that scene where Penelope tells her 
that her cousin who's staying with them that marina marina yeah is pregnant oh she tells eloise it's a maid oh right i was like no eloise doesn't know because of the whole colin thing Mm -hmm. yes that somebody unmarried is pregnant and they're trying to figure out like how does one get pregnant because they were always told (laughs) that it's from marriage but didn't these people ever have dogs or anything and around? And she kind of like storms into the <laughs> sitting room and she's, you know, where does pregnancy come from? Because you always tell me this and I know now that you can get pregnant without marriage. And of course, Violet, the mother, is like never want to talk about anything. But Colin is, well, I'll, like, you know, you ever see like animals that and they stop him and tell him not to tell her. And I, in that scene, I'm like, always. Find him later and have yeah. him explain it to you. So close. <laughs> this information is crucial. Right. <laughs> and I love the actress that plays Eloise. I love her body language mm-hmm. where she's hunched over. And in the second series, when it's her coming up, <laughs> she's just so excruciatingly uncomfortable uh-huh. the whole time. Yeah. I love that part where she filled up her dance card with Byron and all these authors. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she wouldn't have to dance with anybody and that actress has like a really nice low voice too yeah and they set up this friendship between her and benedict the second brother because neither of them want to like have their traditional lives where they put out on the swings and smoke together and talk about like what they're gonna do about it if there's any of that in the books but that's something i really liked in the show yeah I don't remember. It's been so long. So there's all different types of relationships explored. I really like in these books the relationship between women. Mm -hmm. I love Eloise and Penn's friendship and how it's explored and how important it is, you know, to them. And there's the sibling, you know, Mm -hmm. relationships are really important. That is one of the things that I loved about the books is that big family dynamic and the humor you know that comes from it like in the Pall Mall game that the rivalry that comes out is real fun I think to read about. There's a scene in the first book where Hyacinth who's the youngest sister is learning with Simon and Daphne's just what is she she up to she's like 10 <laughs> and she tells him that like oh if you don't end up marrying Daphne you could wait for me to grow up Oh. <laughs> I loved Hyacinth, too. She was just so smart. There's a a mug you can get that says Hyacinth for Prime Minister. (laughs) I thought that was real cute. cute. If only she was reborn in modern day. (laughs) I really like that friendship between Penelope and Eloise, too. Yeah, it's real important. Mm Mm-hmm. And that in the second season, the betrayal of her finding out that she's been writing the... The Lady Whistledown. Yeah, is really good. It's really, like, real. And she's mad about it for so many different reasons. Like, you've been writing about my family. Right. But I also think she's just really hurt that she's been doing this and didn't tell her. Right. And that she wasn't allowed to participate mm-hmm. when it's something that they... They could have shared. They could have shared, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder why she didn't tell her, you know. I can't remember if there was a reason that it was secret. If, if it was just so not done for Mm -hmm. a woman of society to do that i mean penn's got that mother you know like she's got a lot of baggage and Mm -hmm. issues going on too yeah i think there is a little bit about that relationship that eloise doesn't understand quite what penelope has to go through yeah being kind of ostracized because of her weight and 
having the bad relationship with her sisters and her mother makes things like a lot more hard for her right. than they are for Eloise. And so and it's not as simple. The whole family is not as respected mm-hmm. as the Bridgerton's yeah. family is. So yeah, she's always kind of maybe at a lower point mm-hmm. in society. And at that point, like they want different things because Penelope is obviously in love with Colin from the first Right. episode mm-hmm. Eloise is like why would anybody like a man <laughs> yeah <laughs> what do you think about the the heroes and heroines I like that all the men all the Bridgerton men and all the spouses there's no bad boys you know yeah. like Simon is it's probably the closest yeah, yeah but he does nice things in the end or he's yeah. good in the end well I don't know Anthony's kind of a bad boy. You don't like Anthony. <laughs> I don't know how much that is played up in the book, but it feels like it's played up a lot in the show. And it really goes to show like how stark the different the male lives and the female lives are at this period. The women can't know anything about anything. Right. And the men are out there like doing whatever they want. Yes, yes. And, you know, Daphne is older than Colin, but he's got to, like, travel the world and do all of this stuff and have different relationships and and just do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. And she can't even know, you know, like, what to expect on her wedding night. Right, yeah. And you understand why Eloise could feel Mm -hmm. jealous, definitely, of their lifestyle. Yeah. Where she can't even go to school, Mm -hmm. you know, they won't let her. Or it just wasn't done at that time. They were called blue stockings. Yeah. (laughs) They like to read. But yeah, like the bad boy is not like it's not trope a that trope. I like. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, no, he's mean. Just find someone else. We both have very nice partners <laughs> too. <laughs> you said you your favorite character even in the books is Eloise. Do you have a favorite romantic pairing from the books? I guess my favorite romantic romantic pairing would be Colin and Penn. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm excited about that. How about you? I really liked Kate's character in the second season of the show. And so I liked how that works out with her and Anthony. I like how she's like strong and independent. And Mm -hmm. she was like a, you know, spinster lady because she was 26. (laughs) (laughs) She's never going to get married. Kind of someone who could put him in his place a little bit. Yes. Yes. Dynamic. I was thinking about it. They're both the oldest uh-huh. siblings, and traditionally that doesn't work out. But right. I don't know what the age difference between her and her younger sister are. It seems are. like 10 years. A, a lot. Yeah. yeah. So in that those cases, I think it's according to that whole theory, sibling mm. theory, she might be considered an only yeah. child. Yeah, she definitely has a more, like, parental role, I think, in her her younger sister's life than anything else. Yeah, I love that. And this, the fact that they were from India, I just Mm -hmm. thought made that whole story so much richer. You know, I liked how in the Netflix series, Kate was always hating the English tea. (laughs) And she had her little pack of chai, and she's trying to make her own She's like, that's disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, that was funny. I think my favorite pairing is yet to come. Oh. So do you feel the popularity of the Bridgerton series has enabled more people are reading romance now or has made them more able to admit that they like romance? I think it's definitely made it more visible for sure. 
Yeah, I do too. Romance has been for, you know, I don't want to say always, but for a very long time, like a really strong genre. Mm -hmm. People who read romance are like the biggest readers. They sell really well. Yeah, um, people, publishers are making a lot yeah, of money yeah. from publishing them. And I think Netflix is really smart to go after that market. They did that The Virgin River series, which is based off uh, a romance series by... Robin Carr. Did mm -hmm. you read or watch any of that? No, I didn't. I have not watched any of the series, but I've read a couple of those books. And they're like contemporary romance. Nobody was touching not only like historical mm -hmm. romance. I mean, there have been the Jane Austen yeah. books made, but for a big series, uh -huh. I don't know if anyone was doing yeah. historical romance. I think it's definitely the literary gatekeepers. I think that's what the media yes says. i think that's yeah. been the big change yeah as what changed um, that popular opinion mm -hmm. and i think it works a couple ways too because i see how how like the me too movement has affected the romance genre yes and i think in a lot of ways that's made that's made romance more popular too because yeah people are having conversations about it and there's been more uh gay romance mm -hmm. books come out and... yeah from mainstream publishers right yeah yeah opening it up more yeah. it's good to see mm -hmm. and i just too love this show aesthetically oh it's so beautiful yeah and i love the front of their house with the wisteria yes. <laughs> and it's very glossy very beautiful like costumes mm -hmm. are really Nice. And of course, everyone on the show is beautiful. Right. I was rewatching that first episode where Daphne goes to her first ball. And there's all of these men who are like interested in talking to her and her brothers. No, not good enough. No, not good yeah. enough. And I was all of these men are so good looking. Yeah. <laughs> I know I was watching that episode with my husband and I was telling him how that was a real thing where if you're coming out into society, you had to go to White's and you had to meet the queen. Uh -huh. And they always talk in the Bridgerton books about having the awful watered down lemonade uh -huh. or something. And that was a real thing. And he couldn't understand why. <laughs> it's like, well, you got to be British and be in the aristocracy, yeah. I guess, to understand it. Yeah. I don't know how much class systems really make sense. I know that Americans have this love of British royalty, you know, because they don't have it. And so they look to that and admire it. And that's yeah, why all it's the... more of like a fantasy than a... Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's played into the popularity too. Oh, sure. No, and I keep trying to convince Austin to grow out sideburns like that. <laughs> he could do it. He could do too. it. I was like, he could do it in a week. <laughs> The mutton chucks. <laughs> well, thank you for coming and talking yeah. about um, this. has been such a fun episode. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I think I I say this every time. I'm like, I'm going to keep on reading it. But I think <laughs> I'm tonight going to start the Viscount Who Loved Me. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to your shelf. Or mine. I'm Becky. And I'm Joe. Bye. Bye. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.